So today, it's all about North Carolina. The fight for better wages and the campaign to get a progressive person into the United States Senate, all of which is connected to my two guests today. And if the sad outcome of the push to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, an effort undercut and destroyed by pro-corporate Democrats, if that tells us anything, it is that number one, there is a big house cleaning needed to make way for politicians who actually care about workers. And number two, no matter what happens in elections, we need to keep up the street heat to mobilize millions of people to stop the immorality of people working full time, but getting paid poverty wages while billionaires get even richer. This is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you with us for our show for March 10th, 2021. The pitch as usual, give us a modest hand in our efforts to expand the show. Of course, signing up for the show at YouTube is a great start as well as subscribing to my newsletter at Substack. Just look for Working Life and you will find it all. And of course, go over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab, and click over there, and you will see a link to Patreon, where you can sign up as a one-time sponsor or a monthly supporter of the network at whatever level you can afford. Or you can do the same thing by using ActBlue. Go over to ActBlue and look for Working Life with Jonathan Tassini, and there you can become a one-time sponsor or a monthly sponsor. Please consider doing that right now. If you are still disgusted by the vote in the United States Senate to block raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, well, you've come to the right place. It was despicable to watch people who, with a few exceptions, are millionaires and are making $174,000 a year, that's the salary of a U.S. senator, and have gold-plated health care. They were running their mouths opposing giving people money so millions of people could just barely keep afloat. I mean, barely, because let me remind my listeners that if you work 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, that means no vacation, and get $15 an hour, you still only gross $31,200 a year, which is still poverty wages in most places in America. I've been doing a lot on the minimum wage on this podcast because it's so important. And you can check back in our archives and in my newsletter at Substack to get the details. I invite you, of course, to become a subscriber to the newsletter. But today I want to zero in on a very specific part of the minimum wage debate. And to do that, let's listen first to this short clip from Bernie Sanders, who was the principal champion of the minimum wage raise in the debate on the Senate floor. And because this legislation will help workers all across the board, but it will significantly help women who are unfortunately forced into low-income work, more than the general population, more than men, and it will disproportionately help African Americans and Latinos who disproportionately are forced into low-income work, this legislation is supported not only by 300 organizations, but by groups like the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. They understand that if we're going to improve the standard of living of the African-American community, we got to raise that minimum wage. You know, when we look at the economy, people look at the stock market, they look at a whole lot of indices out there. 
But at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, what is going on in the lives of ordinary people? And it is not acceptable to me that half of our people live in paycheck to paycheck, and millions of people are trying to get by on 9, 10, 11 bucks an hour. And you know what? You can't do that. You can't do that in Vermont, and you can't do it in California, you can't do it in Minnesota. You can't do that. And our job is to make sure that we have an economy that works for all and not just the few, and that in order to do that, we are going to have to raise that minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. Frankly, it is disgraceful that Congress has not passed an increase in the minimum wage since 2007. Think of all the things that have transpired since then, but Congress has not raised the minimum wage since 2007. Now, Bernie's point echoes even more so today since just this week, the planet marked International Women's Day. And as Bernie correctly said in that clip, women, and especially women of color, are disproportionately hurt by the immoral level of the federal minimum wage. So to give us the real-life experience of a minimum wage woman of color worker, I want to bring in Precious Cole. Precious lives in Durham, North Carolina, and works at Wendy's. She has been working minimum wage jobs for half her life, and like millions of other workers, has, year after year, not been able to meet her monthly bills on what is a poverty wage. Which is one reason that Precious has become a key activist and leader in North Carolina Raise Up, the state branch of the National Fight for 15 and a Union. So, Precious, thank you very much for being on the show and giving my audience some insight into what you personally are experiencing as a minimum wage worker and also the campaign that you are a key activist in in North Carolina. I thought maybe we would start with a minute or two of what it's been like for you as a minimum wage worker. Give us a little bit of sense of your experience in the last few years. I know that you've been working in these jobs for almost half your life. Yes, sir. Um, I am now uh, 30, 33. I'll be 34 in May. Um, and I am a manager at a Wendy's here in Durham. And like I said, I've been in and out of minimum wage jobs my whole life. And it's just, it's very difficult for some of the stuff that we have to deal with. And not making enough money makes it worse. Um, and as I, I understand it, at some point, um, not only have you had a challenge like many minimum wage workers, just making the regular bills every month, you experienced homelessness uh, as well. So that's been a real emotional weight on you, I assume, every single month worrying about not only do I have enough money to pay for food, but am I going to have a roof over my head? Yes, <laughs> that was a very scary time in my life. It was very scary, but I knew that I still had to work because I, I had to survive. I had to. I, I had no choice. And you're very proud of what you do. It, it's hard work. So basically what you're campaigning for and trying to say to folks, everybody in the richest nation ever on the planet in human history, if you're working a full-time job, you should be able to pay your bills, right? That's just a basic idea. Yes. At least have a roof over your head. At least, you know, be able to 
pay your bills. Don't have to worry about, okay, well, can I put this bill off for, you know, a couple more days just so I can pay this necessary bill that I need to pay, a light bill, a water bill, rent, mortgage, gas in the car to get back and forth to work. You know, it, it's hard out here working a minimum wage job. It's hard. And I make a little bit more than my coworkers. And that's only because I worked my way up because I knew you work your way up, they give you a little bit more money. Right. I think that's really important, What you, the point you just made, because there's a big debate about paying folks $15 an hour, which some people, conservatives especially, but even some Democrats, make that sound like this great amount of money. But as I understand it, you're making $12 an hour as a shift supervisor at Wendy's, and that still isn't enough to make ends meet every month, right? Not at all. Not at all. I still live paycheck to paycheck, making $12 an hour. And, you know, I have no kids, but I, I do live with my mother. And, you know, it's like this pandemic, when it happened, you know, I was fearful for my life, my mom's life, you know, and I'm still fearful, even though, you know, these vaccines are out and, you know, everybody's taking them, but it's still a chance that we can catch it and we take that chance every day just so we can provide for our families with a measly little, in my case, $12 an hour. And you mean it's a chance every day because working at Wendy's, you're interacting with public, right? So you never know who's coming in to get food, whether they've got the virus or not, especially you work in a state where the mask, the idea of wearing masks is not something mandatory and people sometimes wear them and sometimes don't. Um, well, yes. And I mean, businesses out here, you know, they do have signs up, you know, you can't come in without a mask. And we do have signs up saying that you can't come in without a mask. But I mean, like I said, it's, it's still that chance. It's going to always be that chance until, you know, worldwide immunity or whatever happens. Mm-hmm. So as we experience this whole debate about $15 an hour, I often made the point on this show and in other places that even if someone made $15 an hour and they worked 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, that would only be $31,200 for the whole year, which, you know, in many cities, I don't know about the cost of living in Durham, but in many cities, that isn't enough. And it's only just above the poverty line for a family of four. And, and the reason I bring that up is you you are a really big activist now and very involved in not just the fight for 15, but the whole idea of having dignity and respect and actually unions in the workplace, because that gives you real power, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, this all started with um, an old job that I had. And I met some people there that were with the NC Raise Up, and we pretty much took matters into our own hands as a collective, as all co-workers, and we stood up for ourselves, and we got the job done. You know, now that I don't work there anymore, but I do go past there, and it's a much better place. They got rid of everybody that was doing wrong, and it's a great place now. You know, so that's why 
I believe in this NC raise up and the, the fight for unions. So stuff like that can happen. So we can change this world. So we as workers can have a say so in what happens where we work. Because actually $15 an hour should be just the base where you start to organize and collectively organize and bargain for even more to have yeah. a basically a decent living, right? Yes, correct. I mean, I believe personally it's it's owed to us. It it's about time. Like minimum wage has been at seven twenty five since what, two thousand and three? And seven, I believe, yes. But it's a two thousand seven, but it's an outrageously I mean, long time. Yes. They should have raised it by now. We should be at fifteen by now. I, I just I don't think I don't think it's hard for these companies, these billion dollar companies that we work for, to pay us fifteen dollars an hour. We we bust our butts for these people, and we don't deserve fifteen. You say we're essential. You can thank us on on TV commercials, but you can't give us fifteen dollars an hour. But you can spend billion dollars on TV commercials thanking us, but you can't give us 15. <laughs> That's so true. It. That's so true. These are very, very profitable companies. And actually, you know, they've really been stealing from all of us, from all minimum wage workers for a very long time. Because actually, if you looked at how hard people work, productivity over 40 years, the minimum wage should be over $20 an hour. It should be actually $22 an hour. So... Asking for $15 an hour is only somewhat kind of making people up and getting a little bit closer to what it should be. One of the things that you and I talked about before we started recording this program is your perspective as an African-American woman and seeing the issues that you are fighting for, not just in the fight for 15, but for a union in terms of race and gender. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, we're not blind. I mean, some of us are, but we're not blind. You know, it it's honestly a matter of number one, racial, because racial, you know, equality, because over 40% of people that work in minimum wage jobs are people of color, you know? And then it's like, with my personal experience, you know, it's racial and gender because, you know, I am a African-American woman and it is proven that women, women, excuse me, also make less than men. Mm -hmm. So yes, to me, this you know, so to me, this 15 would be like, okay, we see you. We see you as a person, not an African-American woman as a person who has been with, you know, this company who's worked their way up, who is actually in the process of becoming an assistant manager, like to make more money, you know? So it's like, I just, we want to be seen. We want to be heard. Like we make these stores and these companies and these production plants and, and, you know, what, you know, these airports, everything, we make it run. So why can't you pay us our measles? It, I mean, it's $15. You 
you don't think we're worth fifteen dollars? Your your workers and your crew aren't worth fifteen dollars. And you're speaking on behalf of not just folks who work in fast food, such as wet place like Wendy's, but all sorts of folks who are working minimum wage uh, in the retail sector. You have folks working even in industrial places that are working minimum wage too, right? Yes, correct. I'm speaking for all people that make poverty wages. Clear across the board. Doesn't matter who you are, what you do. If you make poverty wages, I'm speaking about that. We need this 15. It's, I mean, it's just, to me, it's a matter of saving this economy. And they say, oh, it's gonna bring the economy down. No, it's not. You give us more money, we spend more money in our communities and, and you know, different places. Okay, so as we come to the end of our conversation, one of the things I was curious about, Precious, you know, we just talked about that $15 an hour is the minimum that folks should have, and it should be much higher. How did you feel hearing about this discussion in Congress, or and how did your fellow co-workers and people you're working with in this campaign feel to hear these people in Congress talk about how $15 an hour is too much, and they actually blocked the idea of getting this $15 minimum wage increase. It just seemed to me to be so outrageous. The conversation was so divorced from the reality of real people. It hurt. It hurt. But to me, personally, per my personal opinion, I expected it. Mm. I... I just kind of feel like they weren't going to give in that easy, which is fine because, I mean, we're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep being in their faces until they give us what we want. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep organizing. And sooner or later, we will get our $15 an hour, but it, it will happen. It will happen. I mean, very disappointed. Very disappointed because it would help a lot of people in this economy. It would help a lot. And, you know, like I said, once again, my personal opinion, but I believe if they can give out all this stimulus money to help the economy, I believe that they can give us our $15 an hour. Point and if one. they can spend all this money on the Pentagon and give tax cuts to the very rich people and billionaires, I mean, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and these other people are making tens of billions of dollars during the pandemic. It seems pretty easy to give millions of other workers a decent raise and a decent wage. So I'm assuming that in some way it's also inspired folks to work even harder when it comes to fighting for this, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're, like I said, we're going to keep fighting and we're going to keep doing what we need to do. It's not the end. It's not the last time you've heard our voices. Well, thank you very much for your courage and for your willingness to fight uh, on behalf not just of yourself, but other people. And we will follow this on this show. And it'll be great to have you back to update us as you continue uh, the struggle and the campaign. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. North Carolina is certainly a hotbed of grassroots activism, but it's also got red hot electoral politics in the mix. You may remember someone named Senator 
Erica Smith. She was a state senator. She was a progressive who jumped into the 2020 race for the United States Senate to challenge Republican Tom Tillis. But note the word progressive. That didn't sit well with Chuck Schumer, who year after year bungles winnable Senate races by manipulating party primary elections so his preferred candidates get chosen to run as the Democratic nominee. Now, preferred candidates means corporatist duds who lose election after election. And Schumer bungled again in 2020 in the North Carolina race. He handpicked the most uninspired, dumb-as-a-brick candidate, Cal Cunningham, who, with piles of Schumer-directed money, won the primary and then proceeded to crash and burn, handing Tom Tillis his re-election. You could actually say that that bungling of that race alone cratered the $15 an hour minimum wage hike and other progressive policy efforts because it meant that the Senate ended up in a 50-50 tie, which gave inordinate power to fifth columnist and corporatist Joe Manchin. And one other note, handpicking corporate-friendly candidates over progressives is just bad, stupid electoral politics. And I can show you how with real evidence. While Joe Biden was losing Florida in the general election, the ballot initiative to raise the state minimum wage to $15 an hour was passing easily with over 60% support. Right after the election, I looked at the voting results in every county, and you can see that in my newsletter. I published that in my newsletter on Substack, and I looked in the voting results in every county in Florida, and in virtually every county, the vote to raise the minimum wage outperformed Joe Biden. What people were saying was pretty clear. Give me a policy that puts money in my pocket and isn't about supporting rich people over regular people, and I'll vote for it, whether you call it progressive or you call it a loaf of bread. So Erica is back now. She's running for the Senate again for the seat that is opening up in 2022 with the retirement of Republican Richard Burr. And it's great to have Erica on the show. So, Erica, here you are on the campaign trail now for the second time in a U.S. Senate race. And we'll talk yes. briefly a little bit about 2020, maybe as we get into the conversation. But I wanted to start with something you wrote, which I thought was so powerful. And it was posted as part of a declaration, a piece that you wrote for our friends at Blue America. And here's what you wrote. This is not a campaign about me. It is a moral movement about answering the hate and division and economic inequality that is tearing this country apart with radical love. What did you mean by that? Well, what I meant by that is an understanding that we've been through so much in the last year in this nation and in this past four years of administration where we had divisive politics tear us apart, divide us in our communities, and pull us away from the foundational principles of this nation. 
we have been a country that's a refuge, a country where we can have equality for all, where we're all endowed by our creator. And so it is going to take radical love. It's going to take a progressive agenda that promotes a survivor's agenda to reach those who have not been well served, who have not been represented, who have been victims of systemic racism and oppression, economic oppression, um, wealth inequality in this nation. It is past time that we once and for all fight for the people who need us to fight for them the most and make this America one that works for all of us and not just the wealthy and the well-connected. I wonder if you see the connection that Dr. King saw between economic inequality and racial justice and how those two interrelate, especially as we're coming out of this debate around raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and especially because we just celebrated International Women's Day. And those things are connected because, as you well know, workers of color and especially women are disproportionately affected by the question of raising the minimum wage because they disproportionately are represented in minimum wage jobs. Absolutely. And as a um, theologian myself, I have studied Dr. Martin Luther King, and I was very excited about Andrew Yang bringing up um, UBI, but that universal basic income, a guaranteed basic income, that was from the beloved community that Dr. Martin Luther King aspired to build. It is in the, the, the issue between eco, um, economic equality and racial equality. They go hand in hand. As Dr. King would say, they are inextricably bound. And so what we understand with persistent discrimination comes the persistent economic devastation for black and brown communities. And so I have been a firm advocate. I've fought all my life um, through ministry, through community building, through social justice to advocate for racial justice that's inherent in economic justice. Huh. Interesting. Um, you mentioned a, a moment ago that you're running on a progressive platform. And in fact, I looked at your website. I studied it very carefully and you are quite progressive on your policy issues. You support Medicare for all example. I wonder if you want to give a think and a thought about what the term progressive means and whether it really fits in this political debate that we're having now. And here's what I mean. And you may want to relate this to North Carolina. In Florida, as you well know, Donald Trump won Florida during the election. But at the yes. same time, the minimum wage was on the ballot there, and it passed overwhelmingly by 60%. And right after the election, I did a little analysis, and I looked at every single county, which took a long time. I looked at every single county, and every single county, the vote in favor of the minimum wage was higher than the vote for Joe Biden. Even in the counties that Biden won, the minimum wage did much better. So does that tell you something about how progressive values and progressive ideas kind of don't fit the traditional political spectrum, especially if you want to relate it to North Carolina? Well, I said this very early on in my campaign. People ask me about my platform, how would I describe it? And I would describe it as a survivor's agenda. Um, we, we, past time, 
is it that we should continue to have people in Congress representing us who have never had to struggle for anything, Jonathan. I didn't come from wealth, I came from hard work. And I know the value of a dollar and how many times we have to turn that dollar over in the community, which makes it a challenge as a black woman, particularly in the South, when black women don't earn but 62 cents on the dollar of a white male. For Latina women, that's 57. For First American women, indigenous women, that's about 52. And so unfortunately, because we are taxed at 100% rate of a male, but yet not paid on the rate of a male, that income inequality is certainly um, something that's a challenge for women in the work workforce. Women in the workforce are heavily dominated in, um, ser as service employees who work off of tips. So when we talk about a $7.25 minimum wage, what does that really mean for someone who works from tips at $2 and what, 39 cents? Um, <clears throat> this is an issue and it's no wonder that the discussion and that referendum on the ballot of raising the minimum wage does so much better. I've said from the very beginning, mine is a survivor's agenda. It is an agenda for working Americans. It's for those of us who have to roll up our sleeves and make the entire rest of the nation work. And we deserve the dignity of our work. And that's a livable wage at $15 an hour minimum. Yes. And that's your point. You, you mentioned that that's a floor. And I think people forget yeah, actually, the minimum wage, if you looked at productivity and how hard people worked over 40 years, should be way above $20 an hour. It should probably be around what? $22 around an hour. 24 exactly. Because $15 an hour, if you do the math, only comes out to about $32,000 a year. If you work full-time, 52 weeks a year, no vacation, 40 hours a week. And that's not much of a wage annually no. to try to survive on, right? Jonathan, it's infuriating, um, infuriating when people who make these decisions about the livable wage and they take votes and they talk about $15 being too much. It's not enough. And so are you comfortable with $11 when you make $175,000 a year, but yet you sit in Washington, D.C. in the chamber and you take votes about not even raising the wage to a survivor's wage? Ah, I wonder who you're referring to when you're mentioning $11 an hour and, and, and the wealthy people. But I will say directly, there's no question in my mind that had you been the nominee in 2020 and then therefore you probably would have defeated uh, the incumbent Tom Tillis and sat in the Senate, then we wouldn't have one particular senator essentially blocking a raise for millions of people because you would have sat there Absolutely. you would have argued along with Bernie Sanders and other progressive senators that this is just a floor, as you point out. So does that, it's just a floor. do you ever think, it, it, will, it ever, will take 39 million people out of poverty just by raising the wage. Mm -hmm. Do you ever then think about this in the context of party politics and how all that kind of shook out and the way in which, and it goes back to my previous question, the way in which progressive values and the progressive movement and progressive policy ideas are actually winning ideas, but some of those folks in Washington and the people who try to tap other candidates and give them money um, don't really realize that and don't understand what people are going through. Absolutely. Not only do they not understand, but they've abdicated their responsibility to serve to special interests and corporate uh, corporations. That's why I don't take a dime of corporate PAC money or fossil fuel money. Um, I work for the people who hire me, and that's the voters of North Carolina. 
And when we struggle and work so hard day in and day out, um, we have to fight to send people to represent us who walk a mile in our shoes, who know what it is to have to get up every morning and punch a clock, who respect being able to take care of their families and provide for their families. And so I am honored to offer myself and I hope to earn the privilege to represent so many people across this state and nation who just want America to work better for all of us. And so you are a very strong supporter of unions, as I know. And I want to connect that to a conversation I had previously on this program with Precious Cole, who was very active in the North Carolina Fight for 15 movement. But that movement says Fight for 15 and a union. And so talk a little bit about your vision for unionization, North Carolina, which is quite low relative to the rest of the nation. I believe it's about 2% in the private sector. Right. And, and barriers are created every day to, to kill unions. But if we're going to rebuild the middle class, we have to start um, supporting unions and revitalizing unions across the nation. And, and it's tough to do in a right to work state like North Carolina, but this is the battleground for it. I have always understood the strength of unions. My dad um, was in the mail handlers union. And in fact, my twin sister and I are scholarship recipients. We were able to better afford a college education through the donation and the philanthropy of unions. Um, so no wonder when I became an engineer in Seattle, Washington, I joined the union and I was a steward and a representative of SPIA which is the Electrical and Engineers um, Association. And so I, I, I fundamentally understand working for workers' rights, advocating for equity, advocating for fairness. Um, that is very important to workers. And that's always been important to me wherever I've worked. When I worked for the United States Patent and Trademark Office, I uh, was an officer in Blacks in Government, and we advocate for employees, employee rights, um, the um, Patent Examiners um, Union, POCA, I was also a representative there. And then I had the opportunity to serve as a treasurer for the Greensville Education Association as a public school educator and member of Virginia Education Association. If we're going to have the opportunities to get equal pay for equal work um, and adequate wage, we have to strengthen the unions because in strengthening the unions, we're also building stronger families and better um, able to provide for our communities. And to your point, um, it's very hard to organize unions actually anywhere. It's certainly harder in a right to work state, but employers spend millions of dollars to defeat unions. And one of the things that obviously you might have a chance to vote on is the so-called PRO Act, which would strengthen union rights and make it a lot harder, somewhat harder for corporations to basically union bust, right? Right, absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons why I was the freshman legislator of the year by the largest um, union and employee organization in our state, and that's the State Employees Association, IMPACT. And as a Black woman in a Republican supermajority, how do you earn that? Because you roll up your sleeves and you fight for the people um, who make this whole state work for us. And so not only are we under attack by proposed legislation, and so I'm so happy for the PRO Act, um, but also in North 
North Carolina, we, we had a majority rule leadership who was trying to take away the right to have membership dues deducted. And so we have to confront and combat the obstacles um, for, you know, pro-union organization. And that's part of what's going on in North Carolina. So in the last couple of minutes that we're going to talk here um, on that point, when you're out there campaigning, talking to people, maybe in the streets, I know it's hard probably because of social distancing, campaigning is a little bit different, but yeah. you're probably interacting still with voters. Are you hearing from them that they would definitely in a so-called purple state, you know, one of those states, which is, as people say, is still being fought over between Republicans and Democrats. Would they really embrace someone like you, a progressive person with that kind of vision in a general election? Oh, absolutely. Because what they're tired of is sending people to Washington, D.C. who are out of touch, who have never had to work hard or struggle for anything, who can sit with good health care because our tax dollars pay your salary and pay for your health care. But yet you make a decision about us having access to health care. I have been I'm the only candidate who has lived in, grew up in, worked in and organized in the rural part of the state. My district in the state Senate is 100 percent rural. It was um, located in northeastern North Carolina and all across that region, black, white, brown people come together on the issues that matter to us, the issues that keep us up at night, the issues of not having broadband access and having our students have to suffer um, through you know, lack of educational opportunities because they can't stay connected to virtual learning. And so what we have heard and what people tell us every day, and when they reach out to us when we have our virtual town halls or when we're doing our meet and greets, socially distanced, of course, everyone wants someone who will understand what it takes to navigate these policies that they're making decisions about, but don't have a clue of the disparate impacts on the ground. They want one of us for all of us. And that is why that is the motto of our movement that we are building. We're going everywhere. We're talking to everybody and we are firing people up because they know in me, they get someone who's a hard worker, who grew up on a farm, who understands the importance of getting um, capital and access to small businesses and bringing communities together and having the infrastructure. So that's what's exciting, Jonathan. That's what we're hearing on the ground. And whether, you know, no matter what you want to call this agenda, it is the agenda that will work for all of us. And so my last question is, obviously, it's a little different campaigning now than in 2020, I guess, when you were campaigning for the Senate. There seems to be a different mood in the country. What's been the hardest thing and the easiest thing that you've confronted? Maybe contrast the two things compared to other campaigns, something you found different or something that you found is really something similar that you've encountered throughout all your political life. It's harder to connect face to face because of the COVID restrictions and the limitations on um, the amount of people that you could have at events. But we have looked at the obstacles and the barriers and we have taken them one step at a time. And we had an amazing campaign kickoff, socially distanced outside at a historic high school uh, in Durham. And just to have the energy of the car rallies and everybody masked up and protected, but understanding that we've been through so much in this nation 
conversation between Black Lives Matters protests, the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, um, this pandemic that's shown us just how broken our healthcare system is, and and this economic downturn that's shown how economically unjust our systems are. What we have learned is that. People are the same. Whether we're meeting them virtually, that's what's been easy. Whether we're meeting them virtually or meeting them face-to-face -face or whether we're calling them on the phone and doing a small coffee chat, everyone's heart is for an America that is finally going to turn the curve on the division of the last four years. The disappointment for North Carolina in some of our election outcomes in November and the determination to not allow that to happen again. And so they've, they've been more, what's been easy is people have been opening up about electability, about changing the criteria of who we believe is an electable candidate. They want someone of honor, character and integrity who's gonna put the people first. And so that's what's been easy for us. Um, we've always been that person and it's been great to connect with people whether virtually or whether face-to-face -face. and we'll continue to do that well erica thanks very much for taking a few minutes to talk about your campaign you're sort of just in the beginning and we really would love to have you back on the show to update us Absolutely. and tell us how you're doing on the campaign trail as the campaign continues and as you become hopefully the nominee and stay safe out there I will. You do the same and we'll be happy to come back. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love for your listeners to try to get to know me. They can go to my website. They can follow us on Twitter. It's Erica for us. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's broadcast. Thanks to my guests, Precious Cole and Erica Smith. Our editor is David Hebden. Help us keep making the case on behalf of workers every week by becoming a sponsor. Go over to workinglife.org. Look for the podcast tab and click over there and you will see a link to Patreon where you can sign up as a one-time sponsor or a monthly supporter. Or go over to Act Blue and look for Working Life with Jonathan Tassini and there you can also become a one-time sponsor or a monthly sponsor. Hey, thanks for being with us again. Look forward to having you back next week.